Hello and welcome to another episode of Bikini Things. You got your girl Laura here in the home studio and today I'm going to be covering a topic I've been wanting to for quite a while. I'm going to be sitting down with board certified plastic surgeon Dr. Jay Calvert and talk about plastic surgery for fit women. And Dr. Calvert is a board certified plastic surgeon with offices in both Newport Beach and Beverly Hills, California. And he is also the host of his own podcast, the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. This is going to be a great episode. And just as a side note, Dr. Calvert is also my doctor. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And let's jump right in. Doing great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited to chat with you. Uh, like, like I was mentioning before we started, this is this is one of the most frequent questions I get from clients, uh, ladies I'm prepping for shows, girls on Instagram who will just DM me. So, so plastic surgery is definitely a very relevant topic for bikini competitors, just active women, and especially um, living in the Southern California area. So very excited to have you. Great. I'm happy to help out. And, uh, it's, uh, it is something that comes up a lot, you know, uh, plastic surgery and fitness, you know, they kind of go hand in hand because people who are interested in fitness are interested in looking great and they want to really take care of themselves. And so plastic surgery comes up as part of that whole sort of uh, lifestyle approach. Absolutely. So just real quick, before I kind of jump into some of my questions, you're you're a board certified plastic surgeon. You've got offices in Beverly Hills and Newport Beach, but maybe you could speak to a little bit of just your background or anything that you personally feel like you specialize in or things that you're really, really great at. would love to hear that. Sure. Well, I'm a plastic surgeon. I love doing all types of plastic surgery, but I've really focused my practice on noses, faces, and breasts. Those are sort of my big you know, big ticket items that I do a ton of, and I seem to liposuction like 20% of my patients who are doing those things. So I have a very strong liposuction background as well. It's, uh, it's it sort of all goes hand in hand. Uh, people come to me for the nose or they come for the breast, and then they wind up kind of looking at other things. So I, I become sort of their plastic surgeon. And it, it's interesting because back in probably when I was in medical school, I saw an article by, uh, some New York Times writer, they interviewed Sophia Loren. They said, how do you look so great at your age? She goes, it's very simple. When you're young, get a great plastic surgeon and stick with them. And she made it very clear that you had to have somebody who knew you and knew what you were about and knew your look to take care of you throughout your years. And I I tend to subscribe to that in a big way. I think people that find their, their plastic surgeon, sort of the family surgeon and you kind of take care of everybody. It makes a big difference because you understand the temperament of your patient. You understand their aesthetics. And it, it really is sort of a, uh, it's a very intimate personal relationship that I have with my patients, especially about their appearance. It's a very big deal. Yeah. And that, that's actually, that's a really interesting point that you make. And I, I believe that I see that even for myself. Haven't, haven't mentioned it a ton on social media, but you you fixed my nose. I broke my nose growing up and I, you know, had a, had a larger tip too, and was really grateful to get a referral to see you. And, and then, you know, I kind of had in the back of my mind, okay, maybe one day for competing, I want to get my boobs done too. And it was just really obvious. Okay. I'll just go back to Dr. Calvert. And I, I've been so happy with everything and, and especially doing what I do as a bikini athlete, I appreciated how much you 
kind of understood like the look and what my body goes through when I'm dieting and also when I'm, you know, gaining weight too and, and understanding what makes sense for me based on all that. Yeah, you have you have to listen to your patients. You have to know them. You have to really get what it is that they're trying to achieve. And it is it's different for everybody. And so being able to customize the plan, you know, throughout not just, you know, for each operation, but throughout your life to really make sure that you take care of the the whole, you know, the whole organism, the whole person, the whole their aesthetics, their health, their physiology it's it's really key and i think that that's one of the things that i i'm really tuned into and dialed into for my patients is being not just their you know well i want to get my nose done but being their surgeon for life and being their surgeon for their aesthetic and trying to really understand who they are so that i can deliver the results that are going to make them happy and build the most confidence for them and that's really what it's about i love that so, so being that you practice here in Southern California, right, we're in Orange County, Beverly Hills, LA County, it's a very, just outside of fitness, bodybuilding and whatnot, it's a, it, the place that we live, it's very, very much centered around taking care of yourself, staying fit, exercising. So what are, maybe what are some of the most common procedures you see with, you know, with women who are very into their fitness or into their health, trying to take care of themselves? What are some of the typical procedures that they might come in and ask for? I mean, it, 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 it's variable based on age. So when uh, I have patients in their you know, teens and 20s, their, their nose is usually a big issue. In their 20s, the uh, breast augmentation and liposuction starts to rear its head a little bit. Um, but you know, it really varies throughout their, their age especially after having children, then the mommy makeovers become a big deal, doing breasts and tummies together, doing uh, abdominoplasties, you know, fixing the muscles after having children. Uh, so it, it just depends on what they're up to. And, and as you know, I do have a very large, a large part of my practice is fitness models. I have you know, a ton of these uh, women who really are super, super like they're just, their, their skin is so, uh, you know, it's tight and they're, they're thin and they, they don't have a lot of body fat and a lot of, you know, coverage for their, their operations. And so kind of nailing their operations is really important. You know, there's just no room for error. And so I, I really love that part of my practice and, you know, the fitness competitions are a big deal and you don't want to make people look like, you know, plasticized Barbies, you want these, you want these women to look really nice and natural as much as you know, you can as a fitness model, I think a lot of, you know, people would look at the the very extreme fitness models and say, Oh, that that's unnatural. But it, it's not it's what it's what the competition is about. It's what they're doing. And so I have to work within those parameters to make them look awesome, make them look better than they would before they met me. And that's, that's kind of the key. Great point. And especially for, you know, female bikini athletes, bodybuilders, we get so lean that especially, you know, for example, a breast augmentation, if, if there's something that just wasn't perfect with how your breast came out, it is going to be so obvious when you are on stage because, you know, it's right there in the, in the judges faces, you're super shredded. There's no body fat to cover anything. And, um, 
and it's like I kind of feel for fellow fellow competitors where maybe their breast didn't come out the way they expected and they've got to have a second surgery and it's like it's kind of embarrassing too when you get on stage and you've got this like uniboob situation or or just something is looking or there's like rippling or things like that so so that's a great point that you make that it's you really got to nail exactly how it how it looks oh and that's a big part of it too with breast augmentation I mean uh if you listen to we, have, we do a lot of these episodes on uh, Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast where we talk about the devices. And there's different devices that can do different things for you. And especially, like you mentioned, rippling, that's a big deal, especially in people that are super lean. You know, you have to, you know, you got to be really specific about not only the device you choose, but the size of the device, the profile whether you place it subfascial, you know, under the, the pectoralis major fascia or under the pectoralis major muscle, or whether you go subglandular to get the best look. These are, these are decisions that are not trivial. And if you kind of think about breast augmentation, uh, breast augmentation, people are thinking, well, you just open up a pocket and put it in a, dev a device and that's that. It is so far more than that. You know, it is, it is just like, it is so much more than just, you know, this simple little operation. It's all about the planning and then the execution. And it's a, it has to, everything has to work in concert or you wind up with, like you said, results that are not attractive, that are, you, you can't hide them on stage. You know, you can't, it's like there. If you have animation deformities or problems that are, you know, very obvious, it, it, it becomes a focal point uh, and, you know, it's not going to help you in winning your competition. Yeah, because yeah, it really is the kind of the whole, the whole look and the whole presentation. If something like that is off, it's you know very, very visible. And it, and it it, it becomes a, it becomes eye catching, and so then the judges' eyes are going to go there. They're not going to yeah. be on the on the whole performance and the whole person. It's going to be on like, what's wrong with that breast implant? Yeah. <laughs> But do you see that, you know, when they talk to each other, like, what, what is that? Is that, that doesn't look right. You know, that, and, and that doesn't help you that you're not going to win that way. Yeah. You're, you're getting, you're drawing attention in, in um, the wrong way. Um, that's a great big point. time. Well, I would love to, I would love to chat with you about maybe some of the, the options or recommendations you may have for breast augmentations for fit women. I definitely want to circle back and kind of talk about, some of these risks, like you, these terms you're mentioning, like animation and rippling, so we can kind of paint a picture for the listeners. But this, again, this is like maybe the most common question I get. So I would love to just pick your brain, you know, for a woman who's fit, maybe has some muscle competitor or not, what recommendations or how do you, how do you go about figuring out what type of, how you go about the breast augmentation so that you get the best result possible? The first thing is to kind of gauge the desires of your patient. What is it that you're looking for? So when, you know, before I start diving into what I want to do about it, I need to know where we're going. I need to know what's the goal. So, you know, when you go in, I always tell patients, when you want to go to your consultation, have a clear cut picture of what you're trying to achieve. That can come in the form of, oh, I have a friend, this is what she looks like in a bikini. And here's a picture of her on her Instagram. Here's, and, and it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be filtered or whatever. Like, as long as you can say, this is the look I'm going for, it doesn't have to be real because it's my job to tell you what's realistic or not realistic. And then the other thing is, you know, all those, any kind of photos that you can bring of where you're trying to go and to say, well, you know, I wear a, 
a 32B bra, but I really want to be a 32D. And I think that'll be, you know, really, you know, exciting because I'm going to do this for my body and all the sort of the parameters that, um, that you can kind of relay to me, help me make the choice of, okay, so these are the options for you based on where you want to go. We're going to talk about these types of implants. We're going to talk about this kind of size, you know, and I'll take measurements. I'll measure the base width of the breast. I'll, I'll assess the quality of the breast tissue overlying the muscle, depending on how much there is, or, you know, sometimes there isn't any, um, which is okay. And, and then I'll also talk about whether it should be a submuscular, uh, you know, going under the pec muscle, whether it's going to be subfascial under the pec fascia or subglandular, just putting the implant under the gland itself, under the breast gland. And so those are sort of the, the big ticket items. But then I also look at chest wall asymmetry, what type, whether you are a competitor or not, um, how lean you're going to get. All those things come into play because I really have to get the best result possible. And so sometimes I have to make it smaller than the patient would want, or sometimes it's actually better to make it bigger than the patient might've been asking for just to say, well, this, if I put this volume in, it's going to give you this kind of a look, which will be more advantageous for what you're trying to do. And so those assessments are really key. So good. Maybe a good tip for those that are interested is sounds like showing up with reference photos is really helpful. Yeah. No, having, having a directional, you know, we want to know where you want to go. So that can come in like I, in sort of descriptive terms, but photos say it all because sometimes people say, oh, I want to be a, a 32D. And what they're really looking at is something that's a lot more subtle. If you, you hear a D cup breast, you think to yourself, well, that's, that's sort of a larger breast for this patient, but sometimes that means different things to different people. So visuals are really key. And in some of the uh, terms you're using, I, I feel like I probably have a good understanding of, of what they are just having gone through it myself, but maybe you could describe what the differences are and, and what, um, what might be advantageous for one type of body versus another when you're describing a subglandular under the fascia or actually over the pectoralis major? Like what are, how would you, how would you decide to use one of those techniques versus the other on a patient? Again, it depends on the goal, but you know, submuscular augmentation, putting the implant under the muscle is when they really want to have a much more natural look, less implantish look at the upper pole of the breast um, because the pec major will cover that. The downside of putting the muscle, sorry, putting the implant under the muscle is you can get animation. The implant moves when you move your arm or you lift or something, it, it pulls on the implant and you, all of a sudden you have an animated breast, which, uh, you know, isn't exactly what people have in mind. Now I do some things to reduce the risks of that. I release the pec major muscle. Um, I tend to put an implant that doesn't allow it to kind of regrow and get those animation problems, but you can still get them. There are definitely a risk of having a submuscular augmentation. Now the, the, so, so real quick there, I don't, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. So, cause this is, this is a common thing that comes up too, is like women will say, oh, I can't, you know, I can't train chest or I can't train back or this or that because of my implant. So that animation, that movement, is that actually a risk for say women who are doing strength training or is that just something that's a little uncomfortable or are there additional risks there if you're, if you're having that going on while you're working out? And yeah, I, I mean, it depends on how the augmentation was done. So in a submuscular augmentation, if you release the muscle, then you're not going to have 
uh, a lot of animation. If you really, you know, if you literally cut through the muscle in the lower pole of the muscle, then you shouldn't have a lot of animation. However, it can regrow. The muscle can fix itself. Um, and if you don't release it, like I have a friend who doesn't release the muscle at all. And he touts himself as, you know, the bloodless breast augmentation surgeon. I said, well, that's true, except that all the implants wind up in the armpits because you didn't release the muscle. And so the pec is snapping down onto the implant and pushing it out laterally, inferiorly and into the armpit. And there's a, you know, a huge gap between the, the implants and cleavage is impossible if you don't release the muscle. So there, it's all about technique. And this is why, and, and we harp on this on our podcast, that you have to look at the before and after photos of the surgeon. So I tell people, make sure you look at my before and afters on Instagram, you know, go on my website, look at the before and afters. If you can find four or five patients that you really like, then you're in the right place. But if you look at them all and you say, boy, I don't, this, this isn't, none of this is good looking to me, then I'm, you're, I'm not the right surgeon for you. You know, maybe you want a big wide gap between your, your breast implants. That's not what I do. I'm sort of all about cleavage. And so that's where, uh, you know, you have to look at the artistry of your surgeon and everybody has a different eye for beauty. That is for sure. You know, and that, that comes from, you know, what I think is good looking is different. What my friends think is good looking. And they're, we're all plastic surgeons. We're all trained to do the operations in a safe manner, especially if we're all board certified. But what we think is nice looking is really different from surgeon to surgeon. So, so with that, that technique of, um, you know, going under the muscle and releasing it or not, what is that, what does that do to recovery time? Like in comparison to the other techniques, is that more recovery? Yeah, it's definitely more. If you go under the muscle and cut the muscle, it's more like a two to three week recovery versus, I mean, when I used to do a lot of subglandular augmentation, I mean, pretty much the next day they're ready to rock and roll. <laughs> it's really much easier. So even subfascial is a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and they're both good techniques. I mean, if you have enough breast tissue, subglandular augmentations are fine. It is associated with a little bit higher capsular contracture. And we try to go subfascial instead of subglandular because we think that the pec major fascia does provide some benefit in terms of reducing the capsular contracture. And just for, for uh, Tracy in Wisconsin, the, uh, that's what we say when we're trying to tell the public about stuff on our podcast. <laughs> I, got that from, I got that from Smartless from uh, Jason Bateman. So for Tracy in Wisconsin, a capsular contracture is when the scar tissue around the implant, which normally forms when you put a breast implant into the breast, you know, into the pocket, whether it's submuscular or anywhere, a capsule of tissue forms around it, which is totally normal. However, if that capsule starts to tighten, if it starts to get contractile forces, which it can happen just through the way it heals, um, it becomes firm. It doesn't move very well. It can actually hurt. And that can require more surgery. And so a submuscular augmentation is associated with less capsular contracture. A subglandular under the breast gland itself uh, augmentation is associated with a higher rate of capsular contracture. It's not much higher, but it is higher by the data points that we have. So you have to kind of also weigh that out when you're, when you're doing these things. And, uh, you know, it, it is a discussion that I have to have with every patient if they're really looking at these different um, approaches. But also, you know, the consent forms enumerate all this stuff. And I think when people read consent forms, like, yeah, 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 I'm just going to do it. 
but you shouldn't do that. You should really read the consent forms. You should ask lots of questions. There's now this uh, form that uh, is called like this black box warning for every breast augmentation that you do that you have to sign this additional form. It's like, there's not enough that says, I understand that I can get capsular contractures. I understand that this implant can become infected. I understand, but I understand, I understand because the implant companies don't want to be liable for the fact that these devices aren't perfect. They're not, they are not perfect. They have problems that require more surgery that require that cost more money. And so those things are all part of having, you know, breast augmentation, you know, whether it's, you know, for a mommy makeover or for somebody in fitness, it, it doesn't matter. They're, they're still medical devices and they, they are associated with the same issues that can happen with anything like a heart valve or a hip replacement device or, you know, any other medical device. Real quick, I want to I wanna kind of go back to the point you're making about the recovery time because, so you mentioned, okay, subclangular where the implant's going over the muscle, maybe in a day you're back at it, you know, maybe under the muscle two to three weeks. But let's think about that from a bikini competitor's perspective. So what is, what is the difference actually in terms of our upper body training and getting back to the gym? What does that look like, I guess, if you're putting the implant under the muscle versus, versus over or, or sub, you know, under the fascia, I suppose. Well, in terms of the, if you go submuscular with your implant, then, you know, the pec, you, you got to leave your pecs out of the discussion for three to four months. You know, it's got to heal first. Um, you don't want to irritate things because you will get, it'll cause a capsular contracture. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of one of the big issues with, but you know, how much chest do you need to train if you've gotten a breast augmentation? So that, that's the other part of that equation. What about things like training shoulders? Like if we're doing a, a front raise where, you know, we're raising our arm in front of us, you know, or I'm trying to think what else maybe a tricep movement where maybe the chest is involved. Like what would you, you know, we didn't, we didn't end up doing that for me personally, but I think I remember during my recovery, I was very specific with you about, Hey, which exercises can I do? Are there other things like potentially shoulders or arm movements that patients would need to avoid during that recovery period? Yeah. I mean, you want to, you want to stay away from anything that's going to strain that, that pec for like three or four months. Like you can certainly do like tricep kickbacks. You can certainly go over, over the head. Um, Military press becomes hard. There, there are certain things that you're really pushing on the pecs really hard that I think are for the first three to four months, you got to be careful with if you go submuscular. Now, if you go subglandular, you can get back to that stuff a little bit sooner and that's, that's fine. You know, it's just a, it is a, a choice of, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the discussion with me when we're, when we're getting set up. I'm really glad we're digging into these details because again, these are these are the questions and like, this is the information I try to convey to you know, my clients or, um, you know, ladies I'm prepping for shows and, and it's how much, how much better is it to have you explain it than, than me try to um, go through these various options. And I feel like we was covered pretty well under the muscle. What's the difference, I guess, between under the fascia subglandular from just a physiological perspective, because again, listeners probably don't have a good understanding of, of the difference of those two. And what are, what are some of the differences, I guess, in terms of the recovery time or maybe the like look that you would expect with those versus under the muscle? Yeah, I mean, the under the fascia and under the gland are essentially the same, even though you're picking up the fascia off the pec, it's very thin, but we think it has some of the sort of muscular properties in terms of capsular contracture. Either way, the, you're going to have a more implantish look 
with, you know, especially in fit girls that are, you know, really, you know, if, if you're, if you're really thin and you don't have a lot of breast tissue and you put a, a, a device under the fascia without a whole lot of breast coverage, you're going to see it and it's going to look more implantish. That's not necessarily a bad thing. If you pick the right implant with the right profile and the right consistency of the gel and uh, there, there's, there can be ways to, to do this, that it looks awesome, but it's, it's a, it's a very delicate balance and it probably will be variable based on weight gain and weight loss. And, you know, I'm sure you can kind of speak to that a little bit too, where you see, wow, this looks better when I'm, you know, five pounds up, but, you know, as soon as I, you know, lean out, boy, I, I really see the, the, the device a lot more. And so those are, those are discussions you have to have. And, and I, you know, I get it. I, I know the, the competitions are different. Um, I know that not everybody's trying to, you know, get down to zero body fat. I know that some are, you know, more about the, the, the weight training and the muscle building and others are more about the, the level of, you know, shreddedness, I guess you would say. And so the, it just depends on what your patient's up to. And uh, especially the, the women in fitness who really compete, like they, they have this stuff dialed, you know, they really do. It's like, you know, it's, it, it's not like just baking a cake. It's like, it, it's like doing a, you know, a, a year long menu for, you know, a hotel where every day and every minute is planned and every calorie is counted and, and it's really specific and the water intake. And, and so they can usually tell me what to expect and what they need. So I can kind of help them with the, with the choice of what to do. And that's worked out really well. And it's worked out for, you know, some pretty big, big name competitors and, and a lot of folks who are just, you know, into competing. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of cool. I, I get a lot of compliments on, on my breasts. I mean, people are always asking who, who did them and like what I chose to do. Um, and I've, I've been super happy with them. I think like, like you mentioned, you know, that first year they were probably a little on the, on the bigger side for me, which was kind of what I wanted to, cause I was anticipating, okay, I'm going to get bigger. My upper body will get bigger. Everything will look balanced. And I remember too, that that first time dieting after having implants, there was, we were kind of looking at it. There was like almost like the gapping a little bit. And we were even considering doing a fat transfer, but I was like, you know what, I'm about to gain my weight back. Like it'll, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is it will fluctuate for sure. So, so kind of just out of curiosity. So um, what we ended up doing, I believe was like 500 CC high profile under the fascia knowing me as a competitor, how did, how do you like make that determination that that's, that's the right fit? Is it just based on the reference photos I'm giving you or, you know, for, for competitors who are lean, do you typically think that more coverage is, is better for, for most of those athletes? Well, I, I could tell that, you know, based on what you were telling me and, and the photos that you showed me, it was pretty clear that you were sort of a full body, you know, muscle building competitor. So with that, going under the muscle is going to cause you some animation problems almost certainly. And so I just, uh, you know, that's what, and that's what we talked about. I was like, look, I think, you know, you can always go back under the muscle if we have to, but I think you should really do the subfascial because I think with the amount of chest work that you do in upper body, you're not going to be happy when that implants like bobbing and weaving all over the place with your, with your arm movement. It's not going to, it's not cute and it is distracting. And I, I think we're, sort of willing to have, you know, a little bit more implant show 
rather than having the distraction of the animation, you know, because at least if you're in a bikini, you can kind of control the look of the, of the breasts, right? You, you have some, you have some say over that. I can use a little bit of a, of a tighter garment. I can, I can, you know, shape it this way. Yeah. You've got, you've got some say over how you present your, your breast implants and, and how that's going to look. If they're moving around, that's, that's a problem. And that's where, you know, for you, I was kind of like, no, we got to, we got to do this subfascial. And I think it's worked out really well. I, I mean, I think they look great. I'm, I'm not sure how they've gone over in competitions for you, but I think that, uh, that the animation would have almost certainly occurred just because you train hard on your upper body. Yeah. And I've had to, I've had to grow so much in four and a half years since, since I did that procedure, they've, they've been amazing. Like it's, I have only, only good things to say. And I try to convey with as much detail as I can when people ask me, what did you do? Because yeah, I've never, never had any issues with animation during my training. They, the boobs look great on stage, all of that. And I also appreciated too that the recovery time was less. So I would love to maybe hear you speak to that is like, what is, what does recovery look like if you do go subglandular or under the fascia over like those several months? What does your strength training look like compared to under the muscle? I mean, I think you're, you're just, you're going to heal faster. I mean, the, the under the fascia is like a no brainer. Um, but you also can't knock the implants out of position and, and they can move. So you do have to be patient with upper body. You still have like a two to three month window of like laying off that, but you know, it, it's, it's totally different. You're not going to have, you're not going to have animation issues. I mean, you can, you can get some scarring to the pec, but that's pretty unusual. Um, so I, you know, I never say never in medicine, but um, in terms of the, the look, you know, it's going to, it's going to look great faster and you're going to be back to doing what you do faster if you do it that way you just have to understand it's going to look a little bit more device-ish than rather than sort of natural-ish but you know again when people get really lean i don't think it makes too much difference yeah yeah that's a great point and that's and that's helpful too because for many competitors or those that are chasing their pro cars or just trying to improve and and be really strategic when they're competing you know, that difference of what you're describing is, okay, maybe under the muscle, it's like a three to four month window. Maybe if you're going over, maybe it's more like two to three. Again, I'm sure patience is a virtue and you just want to be really cautious in general, but that, you know, that might make a, make a decision easier for someone who's trying to plan out their season. And, and there are pro athletes that have talked about, oh, I'd like to get my boobs done. And they never, they're never taking enough time off to actually do it. So that's, I would consider that a, um, you know, a key point for someone who is an active competitor and trying to decide when, when they could do a surgery and what would that look like in terms of the impacts to their training. You gotta, you gotta plan that out. I mean, it is, it's really important. Surgery doesn't heal overnight. You have, you have time to heal these operations and, you know, you have to make it work. You want it to work well and you want it to look beautiful and you want it to be, you want it to be all the things that you want it to be. So you have to kind of follow directions and that, that requires good communication between the patient and the doctor. So you had you'd mentioned earlier, uh, we talked about capsular contraction and animation as some of the risks. What are what are just some of the risks in general of, of undergoing cosmetic surgery, whether it's a, a breast augmentation or anything else? Well, I mean, there's always the basic risks of surgery. You know, there's, you know, you're having anesthesia. So there are problems with, you know, anesthetics, allergic reactions. 
um, prolonged operations can cause things like blood clots and, you know, pulmonary emboli where you know, those blood clots can break off and go to your lungs. And I mean, those things are all really rare. They do happen. Uh, you know, there's every year you hear about some big problem in cosmetic surgery. So I don't like to tell people it's totally benign. It's not, you know, you're, you're having an operation, you're undergoing, uh, you know, we give, you know, six to eight medications in, you know, two to three minutes when we're inducing anesthesia. So like any of those medications can cause problems, all those things that, you know, are, are routine really are carry with them a certain amount of risk. And so I think before undergoing cosmetic surgery, you go, you go to somebody who's board certified in plastic surgery, who's, you know, got a great track record of safety that works in facilities that are, that are approved and, and appropriate. And so you, you look for gold standard kind of people and they're out there. You just have to, you have to really dig to make sure that you're going to the right person. If you think about this statistic, there are about 8,000 board certified plastic surgeons in the United States of America, but there are over 50,000 surgeons practicing plastic surgery. The odds that you're going to a board certified plastic surgeon are low. So you have to really look at that credential. It's a big deal. And actually, I, I feel like I should know this, but what is what is the distinction between a board certified plastic surgeon and just a just a regular surgeon? Like why exams or education do you have to undergo as part of that? I mean, the difference is somebody who's actually trained to do this stuff versus, you know, say like a obstetrician gynecologist who did a weekend course in breast augmentation. You know, a, an OBGYN can do surgery. You know, they deliver babies. They, you know, fix uteruses that have, you know, they do hysterectomies. They, they do all kinds of things. They do myomectomies. They, so the fact that they can operate then makes them think, hmm, well, I should be able to put in breast implants. But that's not what they trained to do. They trained to deliver babies. They trained to, you know, do hysterectomies, to take out a, do an oophorectomy and take out a, a fallopian tube in a, in an ovary. And, and, and so that's different than thinking about doing plastic surgery for the seven years, for instance, that I trained. And also I was tested by other plastic surgeons. And then I was approved by the American college of surgeons. So I'm a fellow of the American college of surgeons, which everybody always asks me that they say, you know, on my scrubs, I don't have the FACS you know, my, if you can see my scrubs here, it just says Dr. Jay Calvert. Yeah. And on the other side, it just has the MD, you know, but I am one of the other credentials that you see after my name on kind of any letterhead or whatever is the FACS. And that is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. And somebody asked me about that. They said, oh, well, aren't you an FACS? I said, of course I am. You know, well, why is it not on your scrubs? I said, well, it's too long, doesn't fit. But I said, then I asked her, I go, well, do you know what that means? And she goes, no. So I was like, well, you should know what it means if you're going to ask about it, because it's an important credential. And what it is, is that your practice has been, has been examined and approved by other surgical specialties in the American College of Surgeons. So in other words, the reason I was elevated to that level of a surgeon was because I submitted a, two years worth of cases, I, I forget the exact number, and then they were reviewed by you know, eight different specialties. And then they, they go in for an exam where there's somebody from cardiac surgery and thoracic surgery and from, you know, ENT. And there's, there are all these other specialties there. And they ask you about how you practice and they ask you scenario analysis and, and you get kind of grilled to find out what kind of surgeon you are. 
And so that's a very big credential. And so when you find somebody who's a board certified plastic surgeon, who's certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery, that's somebody that's, you know, been tested by other plastic surgeons. And it, and it has to be the American Board of Plastic Surgery. There are all these fake boards. You know, there's, uh, there's the, you can be a um, fellow of the American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery, F-A-A-C-S, which looks like F-A-C-S, but, and it's not a fake board. It is a board, but it's not a, an, it's not an American Board of Medical Specialties board. It's a, it's a business. And the, it's a bunch of guys who are, you know, everything from uh, oral surgeons to OBGYNs to dermatologists who perform cosmetic surgery. And they, they feel that they are qualified and capable of doing cosmetic surgery. And based on their licenses, they are. It's not that they are, are not. They just aren't board certified plastic surgeons. We in plastic surgery, of course, believe that our, our board of plastic surgery counts for something. Um, so that's a decision that people have to make when they figure out who's operating on them. You know, do you want an actual plastic surgeon or do you want a, you know, an oral surgeon who's now decided to do cosmetic surgery? They can do that. They have a license to practice medicine and surgery in the state of California. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. And if the patient is willing to sign a consent and let them operate, operate away. Yeah. But are you going to get the best results? Do they know how to prevent complications? Do they know how to manage complications? All those sort of things come up. And that's where, you know, you just have to decide who you want to do your surgery. I, I don't, I don't disparage, you know, these other people that want to do this. It's a, it, it, it's totally legal. It's totally fine. It's just the training to get there, I think is, is different. And, and, and I'm sure some of those people are really good at what they do, but you want to stack the cards in your favor as a patient. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, surgery, not only is it a huge investment of, of money, right. But it's also, you're, you're taking a risk with your life anytime you have, have surgery. Right. So of course, yeah, my, my mindset is, you know, you need to look for the best and, and really make sure you're, you know, taking on as little risk as possible if you're doing something, especially that is, you know, at the end of the day, an elective surgery. And it, and it doesn't mean that I don't have complications. I do. I, I do surgery. I have complications. That's the way it works. There's there are things that are beyond our control as doctors, which is why there are, you know, 16 page consent forms, because it's like, we're going to do everything we can to make this awesome. And stuff still comes up and, and things still happen. And they happen in the absence of negligence, you know, and that's really the key because you're really signing all these papers for the lawyer. So like, if you do have a problem, you know, you have to kind of understand that that unfortunately comes with the territory and it's not necessarily somebody's fault. You know, and in California, we're very suit happy here. And I, I do a lot of expert witness stuff and a lot of stuff comes across my desk. And I'm just like, yeah, but this isn't negligent. Yeah, th yes, it, it's not a good result. Yes, this is a terrible thing for this patient. Yes, yes, yes. Surgeon really didn't do anything wrong, you know, but yet they file these lawsuits because, you know, that's kind of how we communicate in California. It's, you know, you get a, a big bad lawyer and go after somebody. But, you know, in the end, they wind up, you know, either you know, getting their money back or not getting anything or whatever. And, and uh, it, it's, it's unfortunate that that is how we communicate, but, you know, it, it has to be, you know, patients do have to understand that there are inherent risks that are, that are unavoidable, but for the most part, like with breast augmentation, things work out really well. They, they tend to be really great and capsules happen. That's probably the biggest thing that I deal with is capsular contracture and 
I, I couldn't tell you why they happened to one person or the next. And it seems to be like it's 5% or so. And that's kind of the statistics. If you look at the studies, it's five between five and 15%. And those are pretty big numbers. If you do a hundred breast augmentations a year, somebody's getting a capsule and you know, you have to deal with it. And there are strategies with some medications that we can use. And, but ultimately probably if you get a capsular contracture, it's like a 90% chance it's probably gonna have to do some surgery. Got it. Yeah, that's really helpful to know. And outside of some things you mentioned, so like checking the credentials of, of the doctor that you're considering working with, looking at looking at their before and afters, bringing in reference photos, what are some other things you'd recommend for ladies that are interested in plastic surgery, maybe considering getting a boob job, haven't really done any consultations or anything like that? What advice would you give them to prepare for a consultation, to choose a doctor, uh, outside of some of the things you already mentioned. I mean, get a referral from somebody who's been there, you know, talk to somebody who's had surgery there. Um, if you can, I mean, uh, you know, like if you're listening to this podcast in New Jersey, you know, you want to find somebody that, you know, went to one of the surgeons you're considering, you know, the, the reviews on Yelp and real self and Google are hard to discern because there's a lot of review wars. Um, there's a lot of like competitors that write bad reviews yeah, for their, or, I mean, it's like the reviews like are really employees difficult. Employees or, you know, had a surgery and then they're, yeah. you know, they're writing the review. It can be, yeah, I know what you mean. It can be tough to decide. Yeah. It's hard to discern from the reviews, but I mean, I would read them, but I'd say like, well, is this one real or is it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to get, but it, it's usually, you can kind of tell who's a patient, who's not you know, when it says like, when there's a, you know, three page glowing review, like that's not, not a review by a patient, like a patient writes a review, they say, you know, I just want to relay my experience. You know, I went to Dr. Calvert, you know, he's, he's got a great staff. He's a good guy. He paid attention to me. I got a great result. I recommend him. That's kind of the review that you should see when it's like three pages. Oh, first, when I walked in the aroma of the place was the, I mean, like, no, nobody writes that. They don't write things like that. That's made up. You know, so you have to kind of read it through and, you know, and I, I, you know, I don't have perfect reviews on everything. I'm, in fact, I, some of my reviews are that are not good are actually things that bring patients in. I have a patient that wrote this review about her nose, like, oh, I can't believe it. You know, I have nostril asymmetry, blah, 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 one star review. And then she posts her photos and her nose looks spectacular. So it's like people come in, oh, that review brought me in. Like, if that's like a terrible nose job by you, then I'm coming here because that thing looks amazing. You yeah. really helped her, but she's crazy. So, you know, that that's sort of the, the, the hard part is to discern what the reviews mean, which is why it's better to just find somebody who, you know, has been there and say, well, what was your experience? Oh, he's great. You know, he pays attention, da, 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 da. You know, that, that's, that's the best way to go. Or, you know, and if you go in for a consultation and then, doesn't feel right it's probably not you know it's just you got to have some kind of connection with the surgeon and it's it's got to feel like you know this is a good place these people are going to take care of me I'm, i i came to the right place and so that that's really i i think a uh, a key factor in selecting your surgeon yeah that's that's a great point too and when i when i first came in to meet with you i i met with a few board certified surgeons and i think i met with four and I was referred to you by, if you remember, Tom and Michelle, they were personal training clients of mine at the time. Yeah. And Michelle just looked amazing. So I was like, okay, obviously, you know, this guy does good work. 
you know, Tom, who's a doctor also recommended you. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, I've got not only an MD doctor recommending him, but I've also got an example of all his work and she looks incredible. Um, so why not? But I had all these consults just to, you know, kind of be thorough and going to be spending a lot of money and making this big life change doing this. And, and I agree with you. So I think three of the four, I probably would have been super happy with. The fourth one, and I, I don't want to mention a name, but he's a board certified plastic surgeon here in Orange County. And just the vibe and the feeling I got was not good. So I just yeah. knew like it was almost just a gut feeling like this is just not a good fit from his website and credentials looked amazing, but this is just not for me. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, so like right now, somebody's listening to this podcast and like, they're like, you know, Dr. Calvert seems like a really great guy. Like, you know, I, I would consider going there based on you know what he's saying. And there's somebody right now listening to it being like, oh my God, I would never go to this guy. And that's the thing is it's a very personal choice. And I'm not the surgeon for everyone. I am the surgeon for certain people. And, and that it, it's interesting too, because I train plastic surgeons, like we have a fellowship and these are guys that finished their residency and girls who have finished their fellowship and they're uh, going into practice in a year, but they spend a year with us learning how to run a practice. And so we're training plastic surgeons to be aesthetic surgeons. And everyone always says, Oh, you know, you're training the competition. All these guys are going to, want to stay in Southern California. Like, why are you doing that? And I said, well, it, it's a, uh, sorry, that's, that's, that's Frankie. <laughs> Wait, your dog's named Frankie? Yes. <laughs> my, my dog is named Frankie. No way. Yeah. What type of dog do you have? We have a, this is the terror. As you can tell, he's making a lot of noise. He's a Chihuahua terrier mix. Oh. He's yeah. very, very protective. Yeah, uh, my, my Frankie's a, he's a, a pug. He's chill, yeah, he's just chilling downstairs right now. Oh, that's great. I love pugs. They're so awesome. Um, so anyway, what I was saying is that the, uh, they always say, why are you training your competition? You know, these people are going to stay in Southern California, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, first of all, there are 17 million people in the LA basin. So if you can't get <laughs> some patients out of those 17 million people maybe you're in the wrong place i said but that's the other point is that out of those 17 million people they're not all your patients and they're not all my patients and so you have to understand that there's there's a certain patient for for every surgeon and there's a certain surgeon for every patient and so the concept that i should operate on everybody is like completely insane it's just not that's not realistic number one there are way more operations than, you know, there's 200,000 breast augmentations a year. There's, uh, there's, you know, 200,000 noses, there's 80,000 facelifts, you know, there's, there's just a lot of surgery. Like I can do like three or 400 operations a year. So how is it that, you know, I need to do everybody's operation? I don't, and not everybody needs to come to me. So that's why as a patient, you know, you, you do have to really kind of hone in on what it is you're looking for and where you want to get it. And I, I always go back to it, look at the before and afters, then look at the credentials and then go meet the, the surgeon. And I think you'll find your, your surgeon pretty easily that way. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting point. Actually, I would say one of the, one of the selling points that when I was when I ended up choosing you as my doctor is I appreciated the fact that you were training surgeons to me that, you know, both my parents are both have PhDs they're both scientists, you know, I was a, you know, science major worked in engineering for a long time. I appreciate the fact that you were training surgeons because to me that indicated, okay, you're staying current with 
you know, current best practices, techniques, continuing education to be able to train up and coming plastic surgeons. So for me, that was actually very appealing. Um, so it's interesting that, that some people would see that as a negative. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the, the fellows, well, they, you know, they don't, they don't get to do the operations. They assist me, but they do their own operations and I assist them. And so that's how they kind of get their, their education is that they are, you know, cause they're, they're board eligible plastic surgeons when they're with me, you know, they don't, they don't have to be here. They choose to be here so that they can learn how to run a practice and how to, to elevate their game surgically, you know, cause all they've done is their residency, which is a good deal, but you're basically learning how to do a lot of different operations during your residency to hone in on aesthetic surgery and to be a master is a big deal. And so when I train these uh, other surgeons, you know, my, my goal is not to train them to be good. My goal is to train them to be the next up and coming master. You know, that's what I want. I want them to, you know, to literally snatch the pebble from my hand and become, you know, the, the, you know, the top dog. And I, I have to say that it is very, it's so like inspiring to see, you know, what these young surgeons do after they've spent a year with us. And, you know, we, we have, we have people that are out there just doing incredible work and, and these it's, it's cool because it means that what we're doing is, is working. It's really getting them to be the best that they can be for their patients. And that's, that's the whole driver. You know, if you're, if you dedicate, if you're, you know, a like a person of medicine, like I am a person of science, you know, then like tomorrow has to be better than today. And that that's the goal is that every operation I do should be better than the last one I just did, because I have more experience now. And if you take that attitude, then every time I operate, something great is going to happen. And that's the goal. So I have one more question for you um, before we kind of wrap things up. I don't want to take too much of your time, but you're talking about these, you know, up and coming surgeons taking, taking the pebble from your hand, so to speak. One, one thing that I, I see as driving some trends with plastic surgery, and I would love to get your thoughts is social media. And how, how do you see that to this point affecting trends with, with surgery and cosmetic surgery? And, and where do you see like things going with that? Because just my, my own personal opinion is like, there, there's getting, there's women out there, women out there that are just taking on more and more extreme looks. And to me, it seems linked with social media. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts as a surgeon, actually potentially doing some of these operations and what trends you're seeing. Well, I mean, social media is kind of here to stay. I think, um, you know, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've looked at my Instagram and mine is a very sort of basic snapshot of what I do, you know, and how I do it and what I think. And I try to make it really kind of so that when people look at my Instagram, then they come in and meet me, like it all makes sense. It adds up, you know, well, wow. You know, he seems like a, you know, like he's friendly and like he's honest and authentic. And, you know, I, I don't like to, you know, try to, I, I don't like to make things bigger. I don't like to make them smaller. I don't like to make them anything but what they are. And so that's, that's social media to me. What you see um, from some people is that they don't, they don't quite get that their social media should reflect who they are as a surgeon and, and that attracts a certain patient. So this comes down to that. Not every doctor is the, is the doctor for all patients and some of it's off-putting. Um, 
it's weird. You know, some of the, the looks are extreme. They're cartoonish. Um, but most people don't want that. There's a subset of people that do want that. And if your Instagram looks that way, you're going to attract those patients. And that's, that's fine. It's okay. You know, there, there's, there's, there's a, a way to do this for everyone. And so I don't, I don't like to, you know, say, oh, that's wrong or that's right. I, I don't like to say anything about that because I think that, you know, there's such a spectrum of humans and such a spectrum of what they're up to and what they're thinking and how they want to do it that, you know, you have to kind of let people find their way that way. Um, is there a more conservative version of surgeon on, on social media? Yeah, there, there sure is, but that doesn't get the attention. Does it, that doesn't show up on, you know, on, uh, you know, Yahoo news or, or Google news, you know, what, what shows up there is like bizarre stuff. They want a freak show. So, you know, people that want freak show looks, find the freak show doctors. They're out there. People that want to look really nice, find doctors that want them to look really nice. And so it, it is, it, it, it's, it kind of takes care of itself. And I think social media does do that. It, 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 there's a pendulum. And I think that surgeons who uh, react to social media are going to make problems for themselves and probably work a lot harder than they need to. Uh, you know, I've kind of, I, my approach has always been like slow and steady wins the race, especially in marketing. Like I'm not a big marketer, but, but there, there was one patient who came in and I said, well, I'm not really a marketer. He goes, yeah. He goes, your marketing is that you are the anti-marketer. He goes, your marketing is so slick and so smart and so directed he goes, it's why I'm here is because your marketing is so good. And I said, yeah, because I'm the anti-marketer. I'm not, I'm not creating a bunch of, you know, flash and crap. He, he goes, no, your marketing is your authentic self and your practice on, on social media. He goes, and that is really attractive to me. And he's, you know, he's my perfect patient. He's like a Silicon Valley guy who wants, you know, doesn't want any BS and will, you know, will spend the money that he needs to spend. And, you know, so that that's who comes to me because that's what I'm trying to bring in. I want smart people who've thought it through, who want to spend the the time and the effort and, and have the money to to afford the the operations. Discount plastic surgery is a whole different level of marketing. It's like you got to get people in, you got to churn them and burn them, you know, spend four minutes with the doctor. Like there's a whole different world of of social media for that practice. There's nothing wrong with it. It's different. And I really, you know, I, I always, sometimes I hear myself saying things. I'm like, I, I hope people don't under that they're getting like that. It's not bad. It's just, it's different. Yeah. That was, a, that was a really great way to put it. And, and just knowing you, I agree your, your Instagram matches up, I think very well with who you are as a person and as a doctor. And it's, you know, just kind of clean, simple, you know, direct to the point. And uh, yeah, that was a, that was a really great way to, to put that. So, and so I, so I am a big marketer, but my marketing is about like, here's what it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't, I don't create campaigns. I, kind of, yeah. I just, just, you know, I, the work speaks for itself. right. So if you want the results, then I'm your guy and you got to want those results. You know, if you, if you want freaky cartoon stuff, I'm not the guy I can tell you who, who are, you know, I can tell you who those people are for sure. But, you know, from, from my, in my world, I want patients to, to know what they're getting, to get what they want to get. And I, and I want them to know they're going to be taken care of the whole way through. And that's, 
that to me is very valuable because the informed patient is like the best patient for me. Before, before I kind of uh, let you go, are there things that you would like to mention? Or um, I know you've got the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast, your practice, anything you'd like to mention or promote? I think we kind of covered everything. I think, you know, if people want to, you know, dive in a little bit deeper, you know, first of all, the best thing to do is get a, get a consultation. If you, if you're thinking about doing any of these operations, get, find yourself a great board certified plastic surgeon, get a consultation and air it out with them. Talk to them about it. You have to pay them a few bucks for their time. It's worth it. Um, and then uh, in terms of, you know, anything that you want to follow on my stuff, I mean, the Instagram's, you know, great. The, the website has a, a blog that is, you know, Every once in a while, I feel the need to write something up and I put it on that blog. I don't do it too often, but um, it's there. I think my, my Instagram sort of keeps my, is my running train of thought of where the, the education is and what's going on new in technology. So that's sort of the place to follow. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, it is, it is all about getting informed and, and getting the information you need so you can make good choices. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure we include everything, the podcast, your website, Instagram handle, all that. So the listeners can find you in the episode description. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Calvert, for sitting down with me today and, and having this chat. Sure, Laura. It's always, always a pleasure to see you. And thanks a lot for uh, having me on. It's great. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Bikini Things on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Instagram at bikini underscore things or myself at Laura underscore IFBB pro. Quick little announcement, something exciting that I've been working on. I finally got a posing website set up so you can now book an in-person or virtual posing session with me, IFBB pro, Laura Morche. It's a lot of fun. It's something I enjoy. So click the link in my bio and you can go ahead and book yourself a session. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you in the next one. 